we are a little low in numbers this morning, but we shall uh, carry on regardless. It's um, an incredible chapter that we're going to look at this morning um, that ties together a lot of the other passages throughout Scripture. The subject really uh, is the millennium. Uh, it's this period of Christ's reign on earth. So that's what we're going to look at. We'll look at some of the uh, opposing views, some of the things that have been put forward through the centuries as well. But we'll try and stick just to what the Bible's saying as we unravel it. So let's just bow our hearts. Well, Father, we thank you again, as we do always, Lord, for your word. Lord, it is so precious. It's so wonderful. It tells us everything we need to know. Uh, Lord, it gives us instruction, Lord, about where we've come from, about where we're going to, and what we should be doing right now here. Um, and so, Lord, this morning as we study these things, Lord, open our eyes and our understanding, we pray. Uh, Lord, we want to, to grow. We don't want to stay just where we are in our walk with you, but learn more of you, we pray. Um, so, Father, we just give you this time. Speak to us now through your Holy Spirit. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, chapter 20 of the book of Revelation, which is where we've come to, is where we meet, as I said a moment ago, what we refer to as the millennium. It's a phrase we're kind of familiar with because, of course, in the year 2000, we had our own kind of uh, millennium uh, celebration. Uh, as you're probably familiar already, the word comes from uh, two Latin words, mean, which means a thousand, and then annum, uh, which we're familiar with, of course, uh, meaning years. So it's just a period of a thousand years. That's what this subject really uh, is all about this uh, period. Now some will argue that this is literal and some will argue that it's merely symbolic. So we'll look at some of those ideas, contrasting ideas as we go through. But clearly from the from the context of what we find in uh, Revelation, uh, the, the chapters 19, 20 and so on, we've had the second coming, Jesus has come back and then we come to now this period of time. Uh, this millennium or the thousand years as it's referred to. Now, my take on this is very simple. It says six times that it's a period of a thousand years. I see no reason to doubt why that would be the case. You know, so many other scriptures, so many other prophecies are fulfilled literally. Why should this be any different? The Jews were, were prophesied and told by Jeremiah that they would be in captivity in Babylon for 70 years. They didn't take that as being an allegorical thing. In fact, at the end of that time, when you read in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel goes to the Lord, and on the basis of the literal fulfillment of that prophecy, Daniel petitions the Lord and says, okay, now the time's up, what's going to happen? And throughout Scripture, every time we have things that are prophesied, we find that they're fulfilled literally. Jesus really was born in Bethlehem. It wasn't a figurative or allegorical thing. Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit would come. And we know the reality of that. And there are so many other scriptures, so many other prophecies that we can look at. We're, we're told, of course, in Deuteronomy 28, an incredible prophetic chapter that the Jews would be dispersed all around the world. And of course, they have been. So we see these things always fulfilled literally. So why would we want to take it differently at this point? There's no biblical basis for me uh, to do such. But what I want to do is just give you some background to this so that we can hopefully understand that it really is talking about a real physical kingdom that will occur on the earth. Now, I'll just take you back to start with to Daniel. In Daniel chapter 2, you remember that Nebuchadnezzar, the walled ruler at that time, very much in, in the ways portrayed in the book of Daniel, a type of antichrist, his character that sets himself up as a leader of the world and so on has his image made of himself. Uh, lots of parallels we can draw with what we've already seen of what we know of Antichrist. But in his dream, which he can't remember, or says he can't remember, and Daniel then steps forward and says that God can interpret, and the interpretation is given that we have this statue with a head of gold, a chest and arms of silver, a belly and thigh of brass, and then legs of iron. But then the feet and the toes are this iron mixed with clay. That's the image that we see. And then Daniel gives the explanation, says, You, O king, are this head of gold. And of course, Nebuchadnezzar is rather chuffed with that, that he's the gold bit at the top. Um, interestingly enough, when he builds the statue of himself, he makes the whole image of gold. A little bit of an ego trip there, probably. Um, but Daniel says that there would be this kingdom of Babylon. That would be followed by the kingdom of Medo-Persia. Well, historically we know that was the case. A lot of critics love to challenge Daniel and say, well, you know, Daniel must have been written, say, you know, 300 BC, because he couldn't have been written, you know, 600, you know, 6 or 550 BC or anywhere around that time, because the details are so precise. 
Well, if you want to look at Bill Cooper's book we've got at the back there um, on the authenticity of Daniel, you'll see that these events were recorded at the time by an eyewitness. There's too many details that are given for it to be given later uh, by some pseudo-Daniel that happened to write and uh, use Daniel's name, as some critics would suggest. Um, we know then the, the kingdom of Greece followed after Persia with Alexander the Great. And in fact, in Daniel chapter 7 and 8, we find even more detail given about Alexander the Great, all given before the time that he was even born. And then the next part, the legs of iron, we find Rome being the world empire that followed on. And then we're told that out of that empire, the Roman Empire, there would be another empire that would rise, which would have these feet of iron and clay, partly strong, partly weak. That's the the idea. And of course, we're living at a very interesting time in history, as we mentioned already this morning. You know, Britain has just made this decision to leave the EU. Now, what impact is that going to have on the EU? It's going to be very interesting as we see these things unfold. I have to say, I've been a little... um, Amazed at some of the reaction, and certainly in the newspaper, we know the media loves to hype these things up, but the whole idea that this shock result, why is it such a shock? We had two options, it had to be one of those options, it, you know, and, and everybody's so amazed and surprised. But you know what, I think the Lord is behind this, uh, and I think that we're going to see coming out of all of this, um, in the, the weeks, the months, the years to come, an unfolding of God's plan, and we'll get to that stage where we will have, in whatever way, shape, or form, ten kings that are based on or that come out of the old Roman Empire. Um, so, I think what's happened in this past week is extremely significant in regard to that. Let's just look though at some of the uh, uh, or the, the information that Daniel uh, actually records for us. Okay, so just looking at Daniel chapter 2, picking up verse 37. This is the explanation that Daniel gives to the king. He says, Thou, O king, are a king of kings, for the God of heaven has given thee a kingdom, power, and strength, and glory. And whithersoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field, and the fowls of the heaven, has he given into thine hand, and has made thee rule over them all. Thou art this head of gold. After thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee, and another third kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron, speaking of course of Rome, for inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and subdues all things, and as iron breaks all things, shall it break in pieces and bruise. And whereas thou saw the feet and toes, part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, but there shall be in it uh, of the strength uh, of the iron, for as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay. And as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. Even that's an interesting description of what seems to be going on in Europe. We've got some nations that are strong and some that are weak within that. And whatever is going to come out now of uh, what is now the EU, uh, it's going to be very interesting as these things unfold. But we, we go on from here and we're told, And whereas thou saw iron mixed with miry clay, then they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men. Now that's an interesting verse if we can come back to it another time. Uh, because it's talking about they as being something other than the seed of men. Um, but I'll leave you to ponder that. We'll come back to maybe another time and look at that. But they shall not cleave one to another even as iron is not mixed with the clay. And then verse 44 is the one that I want us to, to pay attention of. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall be not left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Now, I think it's fairly obvious from what we've just read that this prophecy doesn't suddenly become allegorical of verse 44. All those other kingdoms have been literal physical kingdoms on the earth, and as suddenly we go into this kingdom where God is going to establish the throne effectively, And God's kingdom is going to destroy and subdue everything that was before it. Now clearly, those kingdoms were earthly kingdoms. This isn't just suddenly now spiritualizing everything. Um, So, again, another really solid biblical reason why we should take these things seriously. Now, back in chapter 17, we saw this um, historical overview of the world kingdom, starting with Egypt and then Assyria, And then moving on as Daniel's vision picks up to Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, the Ten Kings, and then finally 
Jesus will establish his kingdom. You see, all those were literal physical kingdoms. And so again, we can conclude that Jesus' kingdom will also be a literal kingdom here on earth, even just from those scriptures. But I want to take some other scriptures. The disciples are given a prayer by Jesus. We often call it the Lord's Prayer, but this is really the disciples' prayer. Jesus gave it to the disciples and said, this is how you should pray. After this manner, therefore pray you. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. You know, people have been praying that for centuries and people know that prayer off by heart. But what a lot of people do in verse 10 is they say, thy thy kingdom come, and then they kind of dissociate that because then we move on to thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. But I think what we're being told is, thy kingdom come and thy will be done in earth. You see, it's not just God's will being done in earth, it's the kingdom is going to come on earth as well, in fulfillment of all of these prophecies. You see, when we're praying, thy kingdom come, we're not praying for a spiritual kingdom as such. We're praying for the real physical kingdom where Jesus will rule and reign on the earth. Because the contrast is given to that which is done in heaven, and of course Jesus already rules and reigns there. We don't need to pray that that kingdom would come. We're talking about the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom from heaven. Matthew, in his gospel, repeatedly uses this phrase, the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom from heaven. It's no difference, it's the same thing. As opposed to the kingdom of God. Now, a lot of scholars, a lot of people that read these things, confuse the two, and they think that the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are synonymous. They're not. The kingdom of God is the realm where God is in charge. It's the kingdom where everything is under God's sovereignty. And the kingdom of God doesn't come with observation. The kingdom of God is spiritual in that sense. The kingdom of God is not of this world exclusively. But the kingdom from heaven is going to be established on earth. And that's what we are told to pray. As I said, it's misunderstood by many churches. And I think also in line with this, um, the disciples, we were in kind of good company if we kind of get these things a little bit confused, because the disciples got them confused as, as well. But from another perspective, you see, they didn't think this was talking about something spiritual. They just got the timing issue wrong. You see, the disciples thought this was going to be a kingdom that was going to come there and then, in their time, in their day. Because in Acts chapter 1 verse 6, in fact, we're gonna, we'll come there in just a second. Let's just, before we do that, let me just go to Matthew 19.28. Because, I just want to make this point, because the disciples are promised a reward. We're told in, in verse 28 of Matthew 19, Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that you which have followed me in the regeneration, now that's an interesting word in itself, in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, tell me, how can you take that as being non-literal? You see, if it was merely symbolic, you know, and God was talking about a a kind of a good versus evil type of thing, or a a spiritual kingdom, how could the disciples be promised to sit on twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel? You see, a symbolic promise is meaningless. Try buying uh, a symbolic present for somebody, not a literal present, and try and give them a symbolic, it it, it doesn't work. There's no such thing as a a symbolic reward. See, the only way this can be understood is that Jesus was saying to the disciples that there is a kingdom coming and that he, Jesus, would give the disciples the authority, the position of ruling over the 12 tribes because of their faithfulness in following him. And that makes perfect sense. And it's in accord with everything else we see. Now, that verse I mentioned a moment ago from Acts chapter 1, the disciples ask Jesus and say, you know, after the resurrection, after all this, now they're starting to piece things together because they didn't understand why Jesus had to die. But after the cross, they're starting to figure it all out a little bit. But then they come to Jesus as Jesus is about to ascend into heaven and they say, okay, Lord, are you now, this time, going to restore the kingdom to Israel? You see, they really genuinely believed that this was going to be a real physical kingdom. You remember Matthew in the Garden of Gethsemane? He gets out his sword and chops off the ear of the high priest's servant. Why? Because he was expecting some spiritual kingdom to come? No, because he was really genuinely expecting Jesus to start to lead an insurrection against Rome and against the, the Jewish authorities and to establish the kingdom there and then. That's why the Jewish authorities were so frightened of Jesus and wanted him put to death. Because they thought that if Jesus tried to do something and Rome got upset, 
that as Caiaphas made the comment, they may take away our place and nation. So the Jews were very much of the understanding that this was going to be a real physical kingdom. And this comment here by the disciples. But the interesting thing is Jesus' response. Because he doesn't go, guys, you've got it all wrong. This isn't going to be a physical kingdom. This is all going to be in heaven. And No, he said unto them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons. In effect, he says, it is going to happen, but just not yet. Notice also the hope that the disciples had, that the church had. Certainly through the early centuries, in Luke chapter 1, this promise is given by Gabriel to Mary. Speaking of Jesus, he shall be called great, this should be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. Now, unless that's literal, it means nothing. But it's talking about the throne where David ruled as king over the house of Israel. And if you're in any doubt, verse 33 helps us because it says, And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. So once again, all these verses pointing to a time when Jesus would be to return, to establish his throne, and rule over the earth. And the more of these verses you look at, um, the more it becomes so clear to me. And I just want to highlight that this was the belief of the early church. Now, we're not going to go through all of these this morning, but in the, the study notes um, that we've put together um, for this morning, we've given you a number of references to early church fathers. So these are people in the first few centuries that really genuinely believed that Jesus would return. I'm just going to read uh, from Tertullian. He just says, he lived about 150 uh, AD onwards. He says, he believed that a kingdom is promised to us on the earth, although before heaven, he says, but after the resurrection for a thousand years. Uh, there's a number of other early church writers and fathers that made these comments. Arrhenius lived about 130 AD as well, so around about 200 AD. He said this, he said, Christ is the stone cut without hands, as a reference to Daniel chapter 2, who shall destroy the temporal kingdoms and introduce an eternal one when Antichrist shall have devastated all things in this world. He shall reign for three years and a half and sit in the temple in Jerusalem. Speaking of Antichrist, of course. Then the Lord will come from heaven in the clouds and in the glory of his Father, sending this man into the lake of fire, but bringing in for the righteous the times of the kingdom, the rest, the hallowed seventh day, restoring to Abraham the promised inheritance. I mean, he's speaking of something that's literally going to happen. And we've got some quotes by a number of others as well. Um, one uh, Dr. Elliot makes a comment. It says, all expositors except Oregon, and we're going to mention him in a moment, and a few who reject Revelation were pre-millennialists. That means they believe that Jesus would come back before a time of a thousand years where he would reign. And there's so many others. A lot of uh, prominent um, writers and historians have made all sorts of comments, but Norman Giesler is a very respected Christian writer and historian. He said this, he said, pre-millennial belief is so distinctly and prominently mentioned that we do not hesitate in accepting it as the belief of the early church. Another individual who wrote in the 17th century, by the name of Mead, said this, um, premillennialism was the orthodox belief of the early church. And we could go on and on and on. You know, we could really spend a morning just looking at what the early church said. They literally believed that this was going to be a time when Jesus would return physically and reign on the earth. So, we shouldn't have any trouble with that sort of understanding ourselves. And, and people that would suggest to us that, you know, we are odd, strange, getting it wrong, whatever they would, they would suggest because we take these things seriously. I mean, the, the, we often get the, the label fundamentalist. Well, that's fine. A fundamentalist is somebody who just sticks to the fundamentals. So that's, you know, just what are the fundamentals? Let's just ask that question. Well, for us, the fundamentals of the Bible, we stick to the Bible. The Bible makes this clear. You know, there's over 1,800 verses in the Old Testament that speak of the kingdom on earth as being a literal kingdom. Now, just a couple of interesting things here, because in order for this kingdom to take place, a couple of things have to occur. One of them is that not only Jerusalem be destroyed, which we saw in AD 70, but Israel would have to be regathered to their land again for all of these things to, to happen as the Bible uh, foretells them. Now, that's the case. In 1967, Jerusalem was also reclaimed by Israel. And that's another piece of the jigsaw. And as promised in Ezekiel, Israel 
would have to be gathered from all the areas of the earth and brought back into the land. Now that's happened, but as Ezekiel prophesied, the Spirit of God is not yet in them. Ezekiel 37 Verse 22 to 23, it speaks of Israel and Judah being joined back together as one nation with a king over them. It makes no sense to try and allegorize these things or say they're not real events. Now, given you all of this, I just want to highlight what the other key views are that you might run across. One of them is this idea of amillennialism. Now, when you prefix a word with a, it means not. Okay, so to muse means to think a muse is not to think. And that's literally what it is. You have a whole industry based upon amusement, trying to get you not to think. Um, but that's the idea. When you put A in front of a word, so the idea is that there is no millennium. People that are subscribed to this view say there will not be this period of a thousand years. It's not a literal time at all. Another position is post-millennial. Now this view suggests that Jesus will return, and some would say physically, some would argue just spiritually, however that is to be played out, uh, after a period of the millennium. Now some would argue that's a literal period of a thousand years, um, some would argue that that's just a period of time. We'll come back to those briefly uh, in a moment. I just want to highlight one of the issues that, uh, one of the situations has led to this idea of amillennialism. Now, we have to go back to really the first few centuries because what we find is after Jesus has ascended to heaven, the church starts to be very heavily persecuted. Now that led some to suggest that maybe they were in the tribulation. Things were getting very, very difficult. And then all of a sudden, Constantine comes along and legalizes Christianity And so certain commentators, and one particularly by the name of Oregon, said, well, this must be the millennium now. They started spiritualizing it, saying, well, there's not going to be a physical return of Jesus. There's not going to be a physical, a literal period of a thousand years. It's just meant to be something that is, you know, understood symbolically. And so they started to take books like Revelation and try to find spiritual meanings for all of those things. I mean... Even that is very difficult because the moment you start to do that, I mean, let me just read to you a comment by J. Vernon McGee. He said, a friend of mine disagreed with my interpretation of the book of Revelation. He said, it it doesn't mean that. I said, well, then you tell me what it means. It's a symbol. All right. Now you tell me what it's a symbol of. Oh, it's just a symbol. And J. Vernon McGee says, don't you know that a symbol has to be a symbol of something? And it has to make sense. You can't just pull an explanation out of a hat and say, this is what it means. How do you know what it means? It is a symbol, is it, sorry, it is a symbol of something and by careful study and comparison with parallel passages, you are to determine what it is. And he points out what 2 Peter tells us in chapter 1 verse 20, that no prophecy is of private interpretation. You know, we've got to go to the whole word of God. The danger is with all of these positions that it's left to an individual to say what they think the Bible means, rather than going to the Bible and saying, well, that's what the Bible says and I'll believe it. So this idea of amillennialism uh, really started to catch on. And you've got to appreciate as well, and, and I don't believe that a lot of the proponents of this early on were necessarily heretical Christians that were trying to twist the word of God, but they were living at a time when it wasn't particularly popular to go up to the Roman emperors and say, well, Jesus is going to come back and usurp your kingdom and you know your kingdom will be destroyed and so on. And so it became very much the politically correct idea to start talking about these things as just being spiritually fulfilled. And so the idea gets put forward that Jesus would return to reign in the hearts of his people. And that's how he will reign. Well, okay, it's a nice kind of idea, but it doesn't fit with all these verses that we've been looking at and will continue to look at in a moment. You know, the church, as I say, was suffering persecution. When that persecution ended, you can see why some of them thought it would be The millennium, this period of peace and and prosperity. And yet, of course, we have one major issue, which is that Satan, we're told, and we'll see in the verses in a moment, is bound for a thousand years. Well, how can we relate that to any period of history that we've known? The other issues, of course, are the prophecies regarding the nation of Israel, which are very clear. How are they to be fulfilled if all of this is just to be taken as you know, symbolic? The, the post-millennial position has just as many problems, in fact, possibly even more. You know, one of the problems we have is that many in the church today have kind of fallen for this idea, and so the idea is that we're trying to convert the world to Christ. 
and then Jesus will come back. Well, that kind of puts a big onus upon the church. And if that's the case, we're not doing a particularly good job when you look around the world. But of course, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't speak about us doing the work. It speaks about Christ doing that work of revealing himself to the world when he returns. I just want to highlight some of the problems of these views. <clears throat> There's a number that we can mention. But first of all, six times in the chapter we're told that it's a period of a thousand years. So, you know, if God was trying to tell us it's a period of a thousand years, how else could he have done it? I mean, it, to me, it doesn't seem it could be any clearer than this. First of all, as I said already, a symbolic interpretation allows no room for the restoration of Israel and the everlasting covenant that God made with Abraham. That God would give them that land, that it would be theirs forever. As many of those prophecies have yet to be fulfilled. That there'd be a king to sit on the throne of David, which is a national Jewish throne. The other issue, of course, if we're in the kingdom now, which is the kingdom age now, which is what some would suggest, that we're in this millennium as we speak, it would mean that from what we read in Revelation chronologically, all that's ahead of us is a great white throne. And that's a judgment that we've already seen is based upon works. And really it's a sentencing rather than anything else. That's not good news because it means that if we are in that stage now, what about the rapture and all those scriptures? What about the second coming? What about the tribulation and all those scriptures? You see, you, you do much damage to the rest of scripture when you start to interpose these various ideas. You know, also another problem, contrary to what Paul believed, it would imply that the church can't be the bride of Christ because the marriage of the Lamb occurs in Revelation 19 verse 7. But if the church are now going through the millennium, well it means that we have missed that. And that again, it just doesn't make sense of any of those scriptures either. It also negates the very clear teaching of Jesus regarding the time before he returns. And the deceptions that he said would abound, and many of those things we've been looking at over recent weeks. And of course Jesus spoke of when he returns it being like lightning across the sky. Well there's nothing in history that would come close to that. And of course the Old Testament prophecies that speak of the day of the Lord, the time of trouble for Israel, all of which are occurring before the millennium. Uh, We've had no, you know, there's nothing to indicate if we are now in the millennium that that's all been completed. So, you know, we could go on. Uh, I think the, the real problem here is that all of those views miss the real purpose for the millennium as revealed in the Bible. Let's just go through. We're only going to look at the first six verses of the chapter this morning. So let's jump in, first of all, Revelation 20, verses 1 and 2, first of all. And it says, And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years. Now, on the surface, it's very simple and easy to understand, but a couple of things I just want to point out. Firstly, a lot of people get quite concerned about the devil and his power and his influence. And look, it's right that we are cautious. We shouldn't glibly speak of the devil. Yes, he's a defeated foe, but he is still a foe. And the devil would love to ensnare us with sin. The devil would love to put us down. And people have often spoken of the devil as being like a toothless lion, that he can still roar and make a lot of noise, but he has no power over us. And yes, that's true, scripturally, but sin can still deceive us. And our own sin can lead us astray. So we need to be very, very cautious. But I just want to highlight something here, because in verse 1, we're told, and I saw an angel. Not Michael, not Gabriel, not any of the other cherubim or super angels that we read of in scripture just an angel just an ordinary no named angel God doesn't send 12 legions of angels he doesn't send the armies of heaven he just sends an angel that's all it takes to come and to bind Satan you know and I think it puts it in perspective because we are very Guilty sometimes of uh, listening to the propaganda of the Middle Ages, which would have us believe that in one corner of this big cosmic boxing ring you have God, and then in the other corner pitted against God you have Satan, and they're fighting. God is the creator. Satan is a created being, that's all. Yes, he's very influential. Yes, he's done great damage, but he's just a created being. He's just an angelic being that fell. And yes, from what we know in scripture, 
He was a very exalted angelic being. He had a great position and authority. But all it takes to bind him here is one angel. And we're told that he's, this angel is given the keys of the bottomless pit. And he says it has a great chain in his hand. Now, that doesn't necessarily have to be a physical chain. But that doesn't mean if it's not physical, it's not literal. We're told of those in, in Peter and in Jude, those angels that had rebelled before the flood, being held in chains. You know, physicists have suggested that there's at least ten dimensions. Now we kind of exist in four dimensions, length, width, height, and time. You know, the Jewish rabbis from reading the books of Moses, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, made the conclusion that we exist in ten dimensions. Physicists have come to that same conclusion from their studies. And, you know, there's a lot that we don't understand. And one of the questions that sometimes put is about, you know, extraterrestrial intelligence and all these things. And, of course, huge sums of money are spent on searching for extraterrestrial intelligence. And, of course, they've never found anything that even remotely resembles it. I don't think there is anything such as extraterrestrial, but I do believe there are extra-dimensional beings. Because that's exactly what the Bible reveals to us. That there is an angelic realm out there. There's a, a demonic realm. But this angel comes, binds Satan, and we're told, lays hands on the dragon, the old serpent. These are these ideas we've seen through the book of Revelation, these different titles, uh, symbolic titles given to Satan. But very clear. Again, when symbolism is used, it's always clearly explained. And we're told, which is the devil and Satan? And bound him a thousand years. Now again, the whole idea here is that He's going to be restricted from his operations. Because what we're going to see during this time is a restoration. In the book of Acts, we'll look at the scripture maybe in a while, but Acts chapter 3 verse 21, it speaks about the restoration of all things. When Jesus returns at the second coming and establishes his kingdom, this is one of the things that will take place first of all. that The false prophet and antichrist get thrown into the lake of fire. Satan is then bound and effectively put in prison so that he cannot do his damage in the earth. For this time. And God is going to restore the world seemingly to the way it was in the beginning. Now I just want to highlight this because we're going to look at some scriptures in just a moment. But if we're going to go back to the way it was in the beginning. Well, in the beginning, we're told when God had made the heavens and the earth, first of all, the God was very pleased with what he'd made. But the Bible indicates that there was a water canopy surrounding the world. God made the firmament, Genesis 1-7, and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. Now this canopy would have had a number of effects. First of all, it would have regulated the temperature on earth, which would have given us probably a very constant, almost tropical-like temperature everywhere. That sounds good, doesn't it, for us that live in Britain? It would have been certainly resulting in an increase in air pressure. There would have been more oxygen. And because of that, the plant life flourishes, we have more carbon dioxide, all these, this whole thing is in balance. And it also acts as a shield from solar radiation. You know, the, the radiation from the sun is not good for us. And of course we have the ozone layer and so on at the moment, but this water pack canopy would have been a, a much more substantial layer of protection. Now, from what the Bible tells us, this water canopy came crashing down at the time of the flood. But if there's going to be a restoration to the way it was at the beginning, is the implication, I just pose this as a question, that we're going to go back to something like this. There was one scientist that I heard some years ago was talking about some of the atmospheric things that are going on and suggesting that there is a possibility that we could revert to this type of situation. Again, radiation, not good for us. You ever had x-ray and the person doing the x-ray, the radiographer will leave the room and you say, is it safe? And they say, oh, it's absolutely safe. So why are you hiding? You know, it's, we know that radiation is not good for our skin. And if we were to have this canopy around the earth again, it would have a lot of effects. One of them that would probably result is that ages would increase. Now that's exactly what we find before the flood. And it's actually what we're told will occur during the millennium. So just interesting things. Just a couple of comments talking about the climate as it was before the the flood. There seemed to be this very uniform temperature throughout the earth. We know that there's coal seams found at the South Pole. And frozen leaves that have been found there. So clearly there was once trees and vegetation there. The climate there was very different once than it is now. Mammoths have been found with undigested tropical vegetation still in their 
stomach. You see, we often think of mammoths as these creatures that walk through the snow. That's how they're pictured. But we have never seen photographs as such. What we tend to see is drawings by somebody illustrating a point that they want to, to make. And mammoths were creatures that would have probably lived in tropical climates. Something drastically happened on planet Earth. And there's a lot of good information that we could look at maybe some other time to suggest all of these things. Um, there's a number of articles that we could refer to where they've looked at um, insects trapped in amber, that's petrified tree sap, um, and they've looked at the oxygen content. One study that was done by the University of London, UCL, and they concluded that the oxygen content on the earth was once probably double that which it is today. Um, and one of the, the theories that's been proposed is that actually after the flood, it was a lack of oxygen not on an asteroid or whatever, it was the various ideas, that had killed the dinosaurs. That's very probable. We know that the uh, Pathosaurus, sometimes people refer to it as a Brontosaurus, uh, had a set of nostrils about the same size as a horse. Now, with the oxygen content on Earth as it is today, the friction that we created as it tried to draw in enough oxygen to fill its lungs and to breathe and allow that oxygen to get into its blood system and everything else, the friction would have been so much that it would probably burnt its nostrils. I mean, no, no joke. And, and scientists are kind of a little bit of a quandary how this creature survived at all if the oxygen content in the earth and the atmosphere that we have now was the same then as it is now. And so, of course, this leads to the suggestion that, well, maybe it was very different once before, which, of course, is what the Bible tells us. So this may be why, after the flood, the dinosaurs ended up dying out, uh, certainly some of the larger ones. Time magazine, uh, 1987, said this, Earth's atmosphere contained about 50% more oxygen than it does today. This isn't something that's just put forward by creationists. A lot of people have kind of thought these things through. You know, under double atmospheric pressure, the plasma in the blood uh, becomes oxygen-saturated. And there's a lot of good benefits for it. For it. There was, in, back in America, again, some years ago, there was a girl that got trapped down a well. Um, she was in there for 58 and a half hours. And when they eventually got her out, uh, parts of her legs and arms had turned black and they thought they were going to have to amputate. Well, they tried a hyperbaric oxygen chamber, which is... And it basically just increases the atmospheric pressure. It's a pressurized container, really. And she made a full recovery. And there's lots of these examples. You know, they use these to treat dive victims and so on. And a lot of sports personalities and things, when they get injured, uh, certainly West Germany used it for treating stroke patients and so on. And they've had uh, great success with it. As I said, in the UK, um, that with one of the stats we had was over 6,000 multiple sclerosis patients are now being treated with hyperbaric oxygen because of the effects and the benefits. I'm not going to read through all of these things, but France, Japan, etc., Sweden, and various other countries are finding great success by using oxygen therapy. And as I said already, you know, various sports uh, teams will use this to try to get their top athletes back to top form. Um, there's a number of examples that have been given uh, where players have recovered much, much quicker. Now, I'm just saying this because everything we read about the millennium concurs with this type of idea, that the Earth is going to return to something that even scientists suggesting it was once like. Now, we've got fossilized moss three feet deep. We don't find that today. Fossils of asparagus 40 feet high. 50 tail, sorry, 50 foot horsetail reeds have been found fossilized. Ferns over 50 feet tall. Fossil cactuses, sorry, yeah, cattails uh, 60 foot long have been found in sedimentary rock, which is obviously laid down by water. I mean, it's incredible. We don't see this today. Clearly, the earth was very, very different. In Japan, there was a man, Dr. Mori, who grew a cherry tomato plant under double atmospheric pr- um, pressure. It, produced, it grew to 16 feet tall and produced 907 tomatoes, or tomatoes if you like. Um, yeah, you can see a picture there of the size of these cherry tomatoes. We've got in the fossil record in the University of Nebraska, um, there's fossil remains of a rhinoceros that would have stood about 18 feet tall. We can't even begin to imagine those kind of things today. We don't hear a lot about this in the media, of course. It's not very popular with uh, evolution theory. We've got a fossilized three-foot, uh, a dragonfly with a three-foot wingspan. We've got cockroaches over 18 inches. I mean, imagine seeing one of those in your kitchen that have been found in the fossil record. A uh, fossil centipede, eight and a half feet long, has been found. I saw Monty, our cat, the other day, trying to play with a little centipede in the garden. I don't think he'd got anywhere near it if it had been that big. Grasshoppers, over two feet long, have been found in the fossil record. There was a, a donkey 
excavated near Lubeck in Texas, in America. It was nine feet high at the shoulder. You know, how did all these creatures grow to these sizes? Uh, uh, buffalo horns have been found with a 12-foot uh, span from the horns. You know, the earth clearly was very, very different. Beavers uh, have been found eight feet long, uh, the fossil remains of. You know, normal shark's teeth, uh, we're familiar with, we've seen lots of things about sharks. Um, uh, we're going to that in a second, there's a jaw there, uh, a seven to eight foot beaver, that's a, a massive. Uh, that's normal size shark's mouth. How about that one? Uh, the, you know, the suggestion is that from what they found, 80 feet long, there was a program on, uh, I believe it was one of the Discovery Channels a little while ago, speaking about a snake, they found that the skull remains uh, in the Amazon. Uh, and this is bigger than any other snake that ever found. And, you know, it just challenges some of the evolutionary ideas. The remains of a turtle skeletal remains there, clearly you can see uh, very, very large. Again, Acts 3, 19 to 21. We read there, repent you therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. And he shall send Jesus Christ, which was before preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive until, that's one of those untils, the times of restitution of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. This isn't something that's like a, you know, oh, by the way, this is right from the beginning. God has spoken that there will be a time when everything will be restored and put back the way it should be. Back in Revelation 18, we read this. And there were voices and thunders and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such as was not since men were upon the earth. So mighty an earthquake is so great. And the city, the great city, was divided into three parts. So speaking of Jerusalem. And the cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. And then verse 20 says, And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. Now I think that's a really interesting verse. A lot of scholars don't seem to pick up or mention. Because if every island flees away, and you've got no more islands, what are you left with? One landmass. And what do we have in the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth? He created the sea, he created the land. It's not until later that we find that we have in the days of Peleg, we're told that the earth was divided. Some people think that's a reference to the breaking up of the continents, but possibly, possibly not, but certainly at the time of the flood, there had been this upheaval that resulted in the world as we see it today. Now this is interesting. This was put together by uh, somebody who's written an article for Creation Science Movement, just looking at the continents. I mean, a lot of people say, you know, do you think the continents were once connected? Well, they still are. It's just that there's a lot of water in between some of those areas. If you go down, this comment just reads this: the continents and islands which you've put together at sea level made a very imperfect fit. If moved to the right positions, joined together almost perfectly at 2,000 meters below present sea level. That's an interesting aside, that doing this, and by the way, what sits right in the middle of this is Jerusalem. This is a very interesting thought that we may be heading back as these earthquakes that will occur during these, these last days in this current current realm and time uh, will end up putting the earth back to something like this. It's just a thought, but it will certainly be consistent. So again, just returning then. So verse 3, and cast him, speaking of Satan, into the bottomless pit. And shut him up. And again, people think that this could refer to something, somewhere geocentric. The only place you can have a bottomless pit is in a sphere, because any direction from there will be up. Cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. And we'll talk about next week why Satan is released for a little time after this. But for this period, while Christ is ruling and reigning on earth, for this period of a thousand years, Satan is bound. And the earth is not going to be anything like it. I mean, we've been talking this week about the shock. I mean, the shock when Jesus comes and establishes his kingdom will be unlike anything this world has known. And yet we're going to enter into an incredible time. And I saw thrones and they that sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. Who do you think they will be? Well, the Bible indicates that these will be the saints, those that are given this authority to rule and reign with Christ. A number of times in the New Testament, we're told that we will reign with Jesus. 
And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus. So these are those that have died during the tribulation. And for the word of God, which they had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark on their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Now, they specifically mentioned, singled out here in this group, because of the things they've had to endure. But they also will get this privilege of reigning with Christ. Now, quite how it's going to work and who's going to be given authority and what positions we have, that's up to the Lord to decide. But what we are told is that those who are Christ will be given this position of authority when he comes back and establishes his kingdom. But we're told, but the rest of the dead live not again until the thousand years were finished. And then this title, this is the first resurrection. Now, the, the rest of the dead is referring to all of those who have died without Christ. They will remain as dead, waiting for the great white throne judgment, which we will look at in Revelation 20. So those who have died without Christ, in a sense, no change through all of this time. Anybody that dies through this time without Christ, they will simply go to Sheol, Hades, the pit, to this place that is like a holding place for them, waiting as a place of torment, but a place where they will wait until the great judgment day. But for those that have trusted Jesus, they're resurrected. Now the church are the first group to be resurrected and give, be given resurrected bodies. We read about that in First Thessalonians chapter 4. In First uh, Corinthians chapter 15, there Paul tells us that Christ is the first fruits of those that have risen from the dead. But after Christ, those, and it talks about in their order, will be resurrected. Now the church will be resurrected. We find that there will be two witnesses that will be resurrected. And given their new bodies, we find that the multitude come out of the tribulation, 144,000 Jews, all of these different groups, and the ones that have just mentioned here that have been martyred for not receiving the mark of the beast. And this then concludes, it says this is, or this if you like, concludes the first resurrection. That's it, the, the door is shut. Those now who are in, who are Christ, who are resurrected and given resurrection bodies fit for eternity, that has now been cut off. There's no more opportunity to be part of that group that will rule and reign with Christ with their new resurrected bodies. Again, this is the first resurrection. It's been said uh, before that if you are born once, you'll die twice. If you're born just naturally, a natural birth, and you're not born again spiritually, not only will you die physically, but ultimately you'll die spiritually. If, on the other hand, you are born twice, you're born natural birth, and then you're born again of the Spirit of God, then you'll only die once because the only death that will ever impact you will be physical death because spiritual death will no longer apply. Back in John 5, 25, 27, this was one of the questions we had on Thursday night. Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and they that hear shall live. For as the Father has life in himself, so has he given to the Son to have life in himself has given him authority to execute judgment, also because he's the Son of Man. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming, and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and shall live. And this is just this great promise that we have, that Jesus is going to return, that we're going to have this, this resurrection. Those, first of all, at the rapture. This verse goes on and says, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice. And shall come forth. But then we're told, there's two distinct categories. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life. That's what we've just spoken about. The first resurrection, the resurrection of life. And that will conclude at the time, just as the millennium is about to start. But then, they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. And that will occur at the end of the thousand years. That resurrection of life is referred to by Luke as the resurrection of the just. The first resurrection we just saw in Revelation 20. Hebrews 11.35 speaks of it as a better resurrection. Philippians 3.11 just speaks of the resurrection of the dead, but referring to believers. And it's a category. All those that get included in that resurrection, those various resurrections. The resurrection of damnation is just the resurrection of the unjust, and it seems to be just a single event that will occur at the great white throne judgment. As I said earlier, that verse from Corinthians. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order. Christ the first fruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming, 
then comes the end. Very clear distinction between these things. So Christ, the first fruits of those that rose from his dead, then those that are coming, those at his coming rather, which will be the rapture, and then the tribulation martyrs we've spoken of already. For the resurrection of damnation is just a single event. Revelation 20, which we're not going to move on to this morning, but just to read the verse uh, 12. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. We'll look at that in more detail next week. God willing. Now verse 6 just carries on. Blessed and holy is he that has part in the first resurrection. I mean, I, uh, there's no understatements in scripture, but... That really is a, a statement of fact. Blessed. I mean, how blessed are all those that are taking part in this resurrection? Not because of their ability, not because of anything they've done or we've done or could have earned or anything, but because of God's goodness and grace and simply because we said, yes, Lord, we trust you, we believe in you. And we're told on such, the second death has no power. And they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. I mean, again, you can't take this allegorically or symbolically, it just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Now, what we haven't done this morning is look at a number of the scriptures that we could do, and we're not going to for the sake of time, uh, but we could go into the Old Testament and look in Ezekiel, we could look in Isaiah, uh, and many other places where we'll see incredible references to what the earth is going to be like. I mean, one I do want to just highlight to you, of that which we understand during this time, uh, it's just an incredible, we touched briefly on uh, one of the verses earlier, but in the end of the book of Isaiah, uh, there's a number of scriptures that just speak about the uh, the way this earth is going to be transformed and changed. Let me just read to you just some of these uh, comments. First of all, in Isaiah chapter 65, it says, Behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth. The word that's in the, in the Hebrew is Isaiah, the Old Testament. Um, in the Hebrew there is bara, it means out of nothing. And it's almost as if God is going to do something just like he did with the work of creation. Because this earth as it stands is going to be totally renewed. And we're told that the old should not be remembered, nor will it come to mind. And we're going to find that Jerusalem is going to become this place of joy and a place of gladness. And we're told that weeping shall be no more heard in her, and all the voice of crying. Now, some think this is a reference to the new heavens and the new earth that will occur at the very end. We'll look at that in chapter 21 and 22. But you see, what we're told here, there's a number of uh, things, we indicate that this has to be the millennium. It says, there shall be no more thence an infant of days, nor an old man that has not fulfilled his date, for the child shall die a hundred years old. Do you remember what I said earlier about lifespans being extended before the flood and partly because of the climate and so on? Well, seemingly the same is going to happen during the millennium. And we're talking about there will be people dying. So this isn't talking about the new Jerusalem. This has to be talking about the millennial period. And we're talking, but the sinner being a hundred years old shall be accursed. So even though Satan is bound, people still have that capacity to sin. We're told they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat fruits of them. They shall not build and another inhabit, and they shall not plant and another eat. And it goes on. And it shall come to pass that before they call I will answer, and while they are yet speaking I will hear, the wolf and the lamb shall feel feed together, and the lion shall eat straw like the bullock, and the dust shall be the serpent's meat, and they shall not destroy in all my holy mountain. That's what's coming. And there's many other scriptures that you could, we could refer to to speak about how this time will be so radically different. It speaks about children being able to play with serpents and snakes and they won't be harmed. You know, you'll be calling your children in for tea and it's like, put that snake down, leave it. It's just, you're annoying it now. In Isaiah 61, it speaks not just of the earth, but specifically of Israel. It says, to point unto them in Mount Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. It just speaks of what's going to happen, that the Gentiles are going to glory in Israel as they realize what God has done. Zechariah tells us, this is Zechariah 8, Thus says the Lord of hosts, It shall yet come to pass that there shall come people and inhabitants of many cities, and the inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go speedily to pray before the Lord, and to seek the Lord of hosts. I will go also, yes, many people and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem, and to pray before the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, 
In those days it shall come to pass that ten men shall take hold of all the languages of the nations, even shall take hold of the skirt of him that is a Jew, saying, We will go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. The other thing is very, very different. Anti-Semitism will be no more at this point. There's many other references in the Old Testament that a lot of these things we've put in the notes for, for further study if you want to. The point is that all of these things, this millennial reign of Christ is going to be wonderful as God restores the earth to, to the way it was when he created it. And quite what the effects are, some of those ideas I've just put forward, I'm not saying that's how it will be, but certainly it's consistent with some of the things that we read. It's going to be an incredible time. I just want to read to you something that Spurgeon said, and I thought this was quite powerful, um, just to close this morning. It just draws from Luke 23, verse 31, and the verse there just says, as you can see at the top there, if they do these things in a green tree, what shall be done in the dry? Now, his comments are as follows. Among other interpretations of this suggestive question, the following is full of teaching. And this is what Spurgeon says. If the innocent substitute for sinners suffer thus, what will be done with the sinner himself? The dry tree shall fall into the hands of an angry God. When God saw Jesus in the sinner's place, he did not spare him. And when he finds the unregenerate without Christ, he will not spare them. O sinner, Jesus was led away by his enemies. So shall you be dragged away by fiends to the place appointed for you. Jesus was deserted of God, and if he, who was only imputedly a sinner, was deserted, how much more should you be? Eloi, Eli, Lama, Sabachthani. What an awful shriek. That's the cry that Jesus cried on the cross, which we have translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Spurgeon says, What shall be your cry when you shall say, O God, O God, why hast thou forsaken me? And the answer shall come back because you have said at naught all my counsel and would none of my reproof I also will laugh at your calamity I will mock when your fear comes if God spared not his own son how much less will he spare you what whips of burning wire will be yours when conscience shall smite you with all its terrors you richest, you merriest you most self-righteous sinners who would stand in your place when God shall say Awake, O sword, against the man that rejected me. Smite him and let him feel the smart forever. Jesus was spit upon. Sinner, what shame will be yours? We cannot sum up in one word all the mass of sorrows which met upon the head of Jesus who died for us. Therefore, it is impossible for us to tell you what streams, what oceans of grief must roll over your spirit if you die as you now are. You may die so, you may die now. By the agonies of Christ, by his wounds and by his blood, do not bring upon yourselves the wrath to come. Trust in the Savior, trust in the Son of God and you shall never die. This passage speaks of this wonderful millennium that Jesus will establish. It speaks of Satan being bound by just an angel. And it speaks of the resurrection of life for those who've put their trust in Jesus. God has gone to such extraordinary lengths so that nobody has to be excluded from the resurrection of the just. But sadly, some will. And as those comments there, which are not directed at you, because for those here this morning, I believe that we are saved and born again. But for anybody that is not born again, anybody that is not saved, those things apply. Because if Jesus bore the wrath of God in the manner that he did, what will happen to those that reject his sacrifice in their place? Again, I just, uh, I just pray that God stirs your hearts, that you want to just speak to other people. As we get closer and closer to these things unfolding, that we pray, like we've never prayed before, that by God's grace, those that yet don't know would have their eyes opened. Because he's done everything to make it possible to avoid the resurrection of, unto damnation. And so that everybody could take part if just they repent and trust in Jesus to take part in the resurrection unto life. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for these things this morning, Lord. Impress them upon our hearts. Lord, we do look forward with a, a joyful anticipation to seeing what wonders you will do 
during the millennium, Lord, as you restore and just make this earth a wonderful place to inhabit again. Oh, just how incredible will it all become when you are ruling and reigning, when there really is justice, where there won't be need for democracy because the king, the sovereign, will be the one who is always just and true. And the whole world will bow their knee to you. But Lord, in amongst all of these things, we recognize that there are many that don't know these things, that don't want to know you at this stage. And Father, we pray that you would allow us the time, because of your long-suffering, to reach out and to explain to others your goodness and your grace. Father, we just ask, you stir us. Lord, stir all those in this country. Lord, particularly in the light of the events of this week, stir those that love you and that love your word to reach out, to preach the gospel, the good news, that there is salvation, that there is hope, that there's a reason and a purpose. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.